Good afternoon. I'm Jeremy Brock. Welcome to our fifth screenwriter's lecture in conjunction with Lucy Garland and JJ Charitable Trust. Uh, <clears throat> I am enormously honoured to announce that our next speaker is the internationally renowned Lebanese filmmaker Nadine Labaki. <clears throat> Her films include Caramel, Where Do We Go Now, and the stunningly poignant Capernaum, winner of the Grand Jury Prize at the 2018 Cannes Film Festival. Nadine will give a talk, followed by a Q&A with the British Council's Director of Film, Brian e. Hansen, after which we will, as we always do, open it up to questions from the floor. So, ladies and gentlemen, Nadine Labaki. Um, I want to start by really thanking you for being here. Uh, thanking uh, everyone, everybody who um, invited me here for this great honor. You know, I'm, I'm, this is my first time uh, I'm, I'm doing a lecture. Uh, uh, I've never really done this before, so I don't, I don't really consider myself to be a, a screenwriter. I, I do it because um, I need to do it, because I, I want to express myself through the films I do. Uh, so I don't know if what I'm going to say is actually going to be a lecture. I'm, I'm just going to simply uh, share my experience uh, with you, the small experience I've had. I've done three films until now. Uh, I've done Caramel, Where Do We Go Now, and Capernaum. I don't know, I don't know if um, you've seen them all. Uh, so that's what I'm going to be basically doing, sharing my experience. That it doesn't need to be, it doesn't have to be the, the right one, but it's my way of uh, of making films, especially uh, when you grow up in Lebanon, where there's no film industry. Um, back then, when I started doing my first film and dreaming about uh, working in this field, there was no films being done. So, so I really um, learned as I went. Uh, I really learned with my first film, and uh, I almost uh, lured, lured my producer, producer into thinking that I was actually uh, able to make a film when I didn't really know uh, how to even write a screenplay. So, so it's, it's really, I learned uh, my craft as I started working. So um, uh, I just want to start from maybe from the beginning. Uh, I, I'm going to be also talking about uh, not only the screenwriting, but also the, the filmmaking process and the editing process. Because for me, they sort of complement each other, complete each other. Because uh, for me, it's like a, it's the writing process continu continues till the last moment. The film keeps uh, being rewritten as we as we uh, evolve uh, into into this adventure un until the last moment, really. Uh, so I'm going to go back uh, a little bit to how this whole adventure for me started um, in, in making films. Um, I grew up in a, in a war-torn country, Lebanon, and growing up in, in during the war, I think, um, you know, you don't really have a normal childhood. Uh, we used to spend 
a lot of time uh, in shelters. We used to spend a lot of time at home, you know, with uh, sandbags uh, uh, obstructing our windows. So, so there was uh, boredom was a really big part of my childhood. Uh, of course, apart from the fact that, of course, there's fear of not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow and all this anxiety, but also boredom because we couldn't play outside, we couldn't, we couldn't sometimes go to school for a very long time. So I think the TV set that was right in the middle of, this, of, of, of the living room be started becoming very important in my life. And, and um, it was a time also because of the war that there was no power most of the time. So we used to, the highlight of our day, actually, for my sister and I, was the time that there was actually power and that we could actually be able to watch TV. Uh, and we used to really devour everything that was on TV, uh, watching anything. Uh, uh, sometimes stupid TV series, uh, Egyptian films, uh, American series. I, I learned actually English by watching Dallas and Dynasty. Uh, yes, I was a big fan. Uh, I remember very well how I made my first connection between uh, the word baby that I heard from somebody talking and reading in Arabic, baby. So this is how I started doing the connection between what I heard and what I read, and that's how I learned English, really. Uh, so I was the first uh, one in class when we started English uh, later on. Um, anyway, so for me, uh, really, uh, film started becoming a very big part of my life, very important part of, of my life. It really, because I also, we were very lucky because we used to live above uh, a video rental store, small video rental store. So we used to sneak uh, behind the sandbags and go inside and to spend hours uh, hours renting and, and, and looking at films and choosing films and sometimes renting the same films over and over again because there was no big choice during the war. And so we used to watch the same films also until, again and again, until the, 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 the VHS tape was completely de destroyed. Um, and watching films like uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like uh, Grease, like uh, uh, Annie, uh, I remember Back to the Future. Um, it really allowed me to escape the reality I used to live in. Escape, like it allowed me to experiment life differently, to, to in a way, uh, empathize with characters, to live different stories, to, uh, to uh, understand dance and music more to really dream and really escape the boredom of my childhood. So when I discovered that to be able actually to, to create the stories, that those stories that have nothing to do with my own story, in order to do that, I had to become a filmmaker. I decided very early that this is what I want to do in life. I want to become a filmmaker. I want to write stories. I want to be able to dream. I, I want to escape, uh, escape through films. And I told my father very early, I want to make films. And at that point, uh, there was no films being done at all because of the war. Of course, it was the industry was completely dead. So of course, he smiled and said, yes. Because in a way, I was also um, 
realizing his dream because my my grandfather used to have a, a movie theater, very humble movie theater in the village where my father was born. And I remember how my father used to tell me that he used to go to that movie theater and spend so much time in the projection room uh, dreaming through those images that he, he used to see on the big screen. In a way, I sort of maybe inherited this from him, and my sister is also doing the same thing. So uh, we've inherited this love of, you know, storytelling and, and, and filmmaking. Um, I don't know if I should be telling you this, but... Uh, uh, so, so when I... But then when I, I obviously I went to I went to film school and I after I finished film school um, uh, I wanted to learn my craft I wanted to see how how do how do we how do we actually how do we learn it but unfortunately there was no uh, f film industry in the real sense of the term there was no films being shot so I couldn't really go on a set and see other filmmakers' work or, or other filmmakers, um, you know, do their thing and, and understand the rules and, and how, how it actually functions and how the structure works and all that. So, so I started uh, working in advertising. This is, advertising became, in a way, my, my lab. I, this is how I, I learned things, I experimented things. Uh, so when I st uh, really started dreaming of making my, my first film, I didn't know how to tackle it. I really, for me, I, I learned, I learned my producer into, into, into thinking that, into making her believe that I can actually make a film when I really didn't know how to make a film. So I started learning as I went and I created, I think, my own way of working. Uh, it doesn't have to be the right way, but it worked for me. Uh, it worked for me, which is a mixture between, of course, having a very solid script, but then later on working uh, with non-professional actors, bringing people from real life, um, asking them to be and not to really act, uh, because I truly believe that when you're watching somebody who's actually living that same life on the big screen or ha living almost the same life on the big screen, it has a completely different impact on you as a viewer, uh, knowing that this struggle is actually a real struggle. Uh, I think you leave the theater with a completely different um, impact. Uh, so, so I f first of all, the script writing, uh, the screenwriting um, experience had to be fun for me. So, I I I I, I didn't want to feel like I was working. For me, it's it's I'm not a very disciplined person. So, for me to be writing on my own uh, was somehow very. Um, painful. I, I, I didn't know how to really talk to myself. So, so for me, it was very important that I share, that I talk, that I put those ideas out there and that I debate with somebody else. So this, this ping pong effect was very important for me. Uh, so we started writing uh, with my friends and it's the human connection, of course, is, is very important. So I started writing with one of my best friends in the beginning and then 
and then the group started getting bigger, started getting bigger. And, and so uh, for me, it's really writing at home is very important because it allows me to be, of course, being a mother. It allows me to be close to my children and uh, not feeling that I'm really working. So, so the, during the writing process, there's a lot of other things also happening, a lot of breastfeeding, a lot of uh, and diaper changing, a lot of uh, napping uh, time, a lot of uh, also sharing, you know, eating together, um, a lot of coffee and tea drinking. So, so it's not a very, no discipline is actually the word. It's not a very disciplined and structured way of working. Sometimes we spend uh, really hours or the whole day at home just talking about something else, something that has nothing to do with the film. But I think that I, I, I started feeling more creative when I was actually talking about an idea, putting the idea out there and debating. And it actually allowed me to have a very direct reaction to the idea because you have also a viewer. You have a, some kind of a, a sort of a viewer in front of you. You're debating. You're so I think it was, it was, it's very important for me that I, I am surrounded with people when I'm, wor when I'm working and that we are debating about it. Uh, later on, uh, so I did, of course, my two uh, first films. And, and actually, when, I, when I, we started working, I didn't, like I told you, I didn't really know if we were doing things the right way. So we really like, invented our, our way of working. And when I actually had my first, the, 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 the script of Caramel in my hands, I couldn't believe my eyes. You know, it was beautiful, binded and all that. I couldn't believe that I was actually able to write 90 pages, because I think it was like 90 pages of a film. I, I, I started doing it not really believing that I was ever going to finish that film. And I was, actually we finished it and we shot it and it was, uh, a beautiful film that went to uh, to Cannes and it was a very big success and it sold all over the world. But maybe also it has to do with the fact that you growing up in Lebanon, you feel like the, I remember the teacher used to tell us in school, you see that very invisible dot on the map. This is Lebanon. So you feel like you're coming from a very small, uh, invisible place. You feel like nothing, you can never really achieve anything great or anything good because you come from such a small country and you're almost invisible. You feel really invisible. So really, when you, st when you start actually uh, achieving things, you, it's almost unbelievable. It almost feels like a fairy tale. So the first time we went to Cannes, it was also you know, very, a very amazing um, uh, memory for me because a few years back I used to go to Cannes as a, as a, as just you know a student or a normal uh, spectator and I used to beg people to get an invitation to go watch a film and Cannes is very hard it's very harsh so then going there with your own film and the doors being open and being considered like you're part of the family is something that is almost unbelievable until now. So um, then, 
Let me see where I am in my notes. Um, so with time, so I, okay, I wrote my first film, I wrote my second, and I did my first film, and I wrote my second film, and I did the, also, uh, my second film was called Where Do We Go Now, and also it went to Cannes. But then with my third one, uh, which is the most recent one, Capernaum, I started feeling the need uh, to research. I started before writing. I started because, um, you know, being now in a world that um, where nothing is really going the right way, you feel like the right way, you feel like you're living in a chaos. Uh, and especially living in Lebanon, uh, Lebanon being a country that you know now is hosting over a million and a half Syrian refugee, and also, again, being a very small country that is already facing its own economical problems, uh, you feel the chaos all around you. Uh, those, the sight of those children uh, on the streets, uh, either begging or working, um, uh, the sight of those communities of people completely invisible, um, treated as if they're you know, not there, treated as if they don't exist, uh, those images of those children, uh, you know, over the internet, whether uh, the child that, I don't know if you remember, that was found dead on the shores of Turkey a few years back, uh, the image of those children um, dying from chemical weapons in Syria, or, uh, you know, hearing about those children that, those children that are being separated from from their families on the on the Mexican border, I feel like there's a lot of things that we need to uh, defend in a way. I, I felt like I can't really be silent anymore because by being silent, I am almost part of it. I'm almost part of of the crime. It's like. Um, it's 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 one of the biggest crimes. I don't know how how I don't know how we're not uh, now actually uh, all of us on the streets um, um, manifeste. What's the word? Uh, sorry, protesting. Yes, uh, for it. Um, so I felt you know I when I saw this image of this child uh, on the shores of Turkey, I thought. If he was able to talk, if he were to talk, what would he tell us? What would he uh, say to the world that is actually, you know, doing this to him? What did he feel, you know, the moment he fell in the water? What were his dreams? What did he think at that moment? Uh, what did he did he know where he was going? Did he know what was what 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 was the adventure that he was embarking on? What how does this boy that is standing next to my um, car window looking at me, not looking at him? How does he how does he feel to be completely uh, invisible? How does it he, he feel to be completely non-existent? Because this is what we usually do. Unfortunately, we we tend to not look because sometimes the problem is, is too big. Uh, we feel like we can't do anything about it, so we choose to continue to continue our lives. Uh, 
So I felt responsible in a way. I felt I, 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 I can't just continue being silent. So I want to talk about this. And I was coming back home um, one night, and I saw it, another child also sitting on a cement block. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and he was, it was at a traffic light. And he was just dozing off, not being able to sleep. And he was like about one or, or one and a half years old. And I came back home, and I drew a picture of a child shouting at adults. And this actually picture became my latest film, Capernaum. It became the story of, of a child who was going to sue his parents for giving him life, because it was inspired by all the research that we were doing. To so go back to the, the research uh, process that I was talking to you about, it was very important in order to, to start becoming the vehicle for these children to express themselves, because this is what I felt like doing. I wanted to become their voice in a way. I wanted to be able uh, to understand exactly what goes on in their heads. What is the behind the scenes of, of, of their life? What happens when this child disappears around the corner and he, I don't see him anymore? Where, where does he go? Who is his family? Um, so we started this whole research process. And I knew how important this research process is, because I felt that I was not actually entitled to invent that story. I, wasn't, I haven't been there. I haven't been in those shoes. So I, I'm not entitled to come up with a story. I'm not entitled to fantasize the story. I have to know what the real story is. And this is my mission, is actually to capture this and, and put a magnifying glass on it and, in a way, humanize it. Because, of course, we hear about it in the news and we treat it as if it was some kind of big abstract problem. But we forget to sometimes put a face on the problem. And, and actually, I think cinema can have a much uh, has, has this bigger mission, actually, to humanize the problem, to, to put a face on the problem. It, it has the face of a, of a child or of a, of, a, of a woman or of a man struggling. And actually, it can have a, a completely different impact on you as a human being when you know that this is an actual struggle. This is actually somebody who's having that same struggle in their real life. Um, uh, so um, we started this, this, this research going everywhere in Lebanon, you know, going to the most unfortunate places, to the most difficult neighborhood, talking to lots of children, and also trying to understand the point of view of the parents, also talking to lots of parents, also trying to understand the point of view of justice. How does the justice system work? We spent so much time in, in courts, uh, trying, just observing how does this justice system work uh, when it's facing a child, whether the child is there because he needs protection or because he's committed some kind of criminal act. Or, and we saw lots of children and spoke to lots of children. And we're talking about children who are facing extreme neglect. We're not talking about uh, you know, any unhappy children. We're talking about children who have been abused, who have been raped, who have been 
who've been tortured, children who've been beaten up a lot, uh, children who never hear a nice word. So, so, so I just translated, started translated those discussions that we used to have into this uh, story, uh, translating the way they were angry. Because I used to ask them one question at the end of the conversation, which is, are you happy to be alive? And most of the times, unfortunately, the answer would be no. I'm not happy to be here. I'm, I wish I was dead. I don't know why I'm here, if nobody's going to love me, if I'm going to be beaten up every day, if I'm going to be raped, if I'm going to be... Why, why, why this, this, this angry why all the time? Why am I here? So I, I started, you know, translating this, uh, trying to translate it, and, and that's how it became the story of this child who was going to sue the world, actually, for bringing him to this life and not giving him his most fundamental rights. So, so during the um, during the the uh, the, re the research process, I knew that I was going to be working with non-professional actors, actors who are not really actors, people who are 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 living that same struggle. I knew that it was important for me to become, in a way, to create a platform through my film. Uh, to create a platform for them to express themselves. So we used to go on this research every day and come back home and, you know, debate and, and remember the, the scenes, remember the dialogues, remember, uh, you know, details, small details that we used to see and start weaving them into a story. So it's the whole story of Capernaum is actually a mixture, uh, uh, Yes, a, a mixture of everything and all the scenes that we used to see. And we, of course, it started with wanting to talk about a child and, and, and child labor and a child not, not receiving his most fundamental rights. But then slowly we understood that you can't talk about child labor without talking about paperless children. You can't talk about paperless children without talking about uh, the the... the um, um, the absurdity of having to have a paper to prove that you exist, uh, the absurdity of borders, without talking about the Syrian refugee crisis or the refugee crisis overall, without talking about uh, um, uh, modern slavery, without talking about human trafficking, without talking about early marriage. Everything, in a way, we understood that everything was was intertwined. Everything was, all the problems were so, so intricately um, related to each other. And in, in each family, even if some people say, find it sometimes that it's too much, there's too many things, we're talking about too many themes in the film, but it's actually the reality. Uh, those things can actually happen in one single family. So understanding this, uh, it was impossible, like I told you, not to talk about everything. So we started weaving all those themes into that story. So we had a very solid story at the end of, you know, and based on everything we used to see at the end of those three years. But then working with non-professional actors, I knew that we needed also to give them the space, because they're not professional actors, it's impossible to, um, 
actually impose on them a text or, or expect that they uh, memorize a text and that they say it in a natural way. It was actually killing the process. So for me, it was very important to give them time, to give them space, to give to be able to adapt to their own personality and not really impose whatever we had written on them. So it was a very, it was a sort of a, you know, choreography, a negotiation between their reality and the fiction that we had written. So the film was actually being rewritten while we were shooting. Um, and this means, uh, Really, it was a collaborative process. They are part of the writing process. And you have to be able to allow them. Uh, it, it, in a way, time was very important. This is why we shot for so long. We shot for six months. And we, we have over 500 hours of rushes. So you have to give them the time uh, to understand what they were doing. You have to be able, in a way, to become invisible and not to paralyze them. So this means no marks. This means uh, uh, natural light most of the time. This means intervening the least possible. This means shooting in natural location. This means uh, being, um, in a way, trying to become invisible in order for them not to feel your presence anymore. It means uh, giving them wings by, by making them feel how what they have to say is important. Because, of course, in the beginning, they're very shy. They don't know. They don't know if, anyway, they're struggling in their real life to even exist. So how can whatever they have to say be important to anyone? So they feel like they're, you know, whatever they have to say is not important. So you have to create this sort of relationship for them to trust you and for them to start um, um, feeling that they have the right to actually uh, express themselves freely. So you have to really work, capture their reality, and then, uh, in a way, navigate it towards the fiction that was written. So it was an ongoing process all the time of rewriting. Um, so, and it also means guiding them through the take uh, and letting, letting it evolve, you know, evolve organically. It means also having to talk also the whole time, which is very, very problematic for the, it was a nightmare for, of course, the editors to actually take my voice out because you have to, you know, guide them through it the whole time. And this meant also um, uh, shooting uh, f very long takes, uh, and it meant also having an amazing crew of people that really believe in what you're doing and not doubt at any time what you're doing. Because what we were doing was a little bit crazy. Sometimes we, we used to really shoot for hours with the cameras on their shoulders, uh, boom operators uh, in this position, and, and you have to have a crew that really believes in what you're doing in order for them to... Uh, to stay, to, to just be with you on this adventure. Um, and I think, in a way, uh, it also 
the fact that we felt that life, uh, art was imitating life so, 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 I think closely that life started imposing itself on us in a, in a certain way. So we had very strange things happening happening to us during the shoot. Uh, like two days after the, the, I don't know if you've seen it, how many of you have seen Capernaum? Yes, yeah, so for the people uh, who have seen it, you know, there's a scene where, uh, where, where she's, uh, Rahil is being captured uh, because she doesn't have any, any papers. So two days after we shoot that scene, Rahil is captured in real life for exactly the same reasons. And so she lives, she goes through exactly this, almost the same situations. And, and the father and mother of the child that is in the film, Jonas, who is actually a girl in real life, her name is Treasure, are arrested with her at the same time. So when we were shooting those scenes with Treasure, um, where Treasure is without her mother, she was actually, in reality, without her mother. So you, in a way, you start feeling that you're actually uh, capturing reality. And it starts, it starts also uh, uh, having a very big impact on, on you as, as a human being, capturing that moment. You don't know anymore what you're doing. Is this a film? Is this reality? And this kept really happening the whole time with us. And, and I think uh, because we also wanted to allow it, we wanted to embrace also whatever life was going to bring our way. It meant not being afraid of, of just uh, walking outside, you know, the, 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 the paved ways in a way, walking outside, outside the box. Uh, it meant also shooting things, not being afraid of, you know, continuity, because the fear of continuity usually is a very big fear. And, and we sometimes used to, because you can't expect, especially when you're working with children, you can't expect them to do what you want them to do exactly at the time you want them to do it. So you really have to be uh, ad adaptable. And sometimes we used to shoot a certain, certain uh, scenes that were not supposed to happen uh, at the time that we were shooting them. But because, you know, it was adequate, we used to, and then, and then we used to take it and put it in a different scene. And we had lots of, lots of um, scenes that where, where you don't really see it, but there's a big continuity problem. They are actually wearing different clothes. They are actually, uh, uh, but you don't really feel it because you're so drawn into the, I think, what's happening in the scene that you don't really notice that they're wearing different clothes. And so you need to be, you know, in a way, uh, adaptable and, and really adapt to their own rhythm and not expect them to adapt to your way of working or to your, um, uh, your, your, your mise-en-scene or a certain camera movement. So that's why um, I was talking about uh, allowing also reality uh, uh, to, to take, you know, to, to give us uh, or, or to, in a way, to impose itself on us and life to, and embrace whatever's happened. Talk to you about the, the, the moment where she's waving to uh, her nephew. Uh, this was exactly, this was something that really happened. And we shot it. She, Saad, who, her name is Kausar in real life, is also coming from the same 
uh, almost the same situation that she's playing in the film. So at that moment, we were in that courtyard, in, in that prison. This is a very well-known, uh, very harsh, well-known prison in Lebanon, very famous prison in Lebanon. And, and she was actually the whole time being very anxious. And I, I spoke to her and said, what's, Kausar, what's happening? What, what's, what's happening? She said, my nephew is in one of those cells, and I don't want him to see me. I'm afraid of his reaction if he sees me, uh, you know, acting in a film. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't visited him in a very long time. And really, 10 minutes later, I hear her starting to shout. And we were having lunch. And we were, ha you know, having lunch behind, behind uh, buses and all that. And I start hearing her, her shouting. And I uh, get, come out, and I see her actually talking to her nephew. So he saw her. And he called her. And she started talking to him. And we were all the time very ready to shoot whatever life was going to give us also, whatever. The, the word was never to stop shooting. So we, 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 we just stopped eating, and we, put our, we take our cameras, and we start shooting. And this was an actual moment, real moment. She's talking to her nephew, asking him, so all, all of you are in the same cell together? And he says, yes. And he, she says, God, God bless. So, and we also, so we embraced it and we put it in the film because we, because I thought also that it was a, it was a very um, uh, almost important uh, trait about her character, about where she comes from, about who she is, about her situation in real life. So stuff like that used to op happen like this all the time. Um, but... Uh, and there was another scene also that I'd like you to see. But before that, um, I'd like I will, I will let's let's see the scene and then I'll explain uh, again to go back to the to the idea of allowing everything to happen and becoming almost invisible and shooting. We shot in the in most in all of uh, all of the. Um, Scenes in in real locations with the real people, no no extras whatsoever. We didn't stop anything. We didn't stop the people from walking in and out of the frame. We didn't stop the sound. We didn't stop. We just shot with everything that was happening. And what was very funny is that we had two cameras filming that scene. People would actually enter the frame go uh, and start talking to Aspro and started negotiating, the, the, like asking for like, uh, I don't know, I want a lipstick or I want something, and started negotiating the price while we were actually filming, as if they didn't really see us, as if it was fascinating to see how invisible in a way we had become and how we really allowed everything to happen. So actually, people were coming in, buying things from Aspro, Aspro negotiating the price yeah, and paying, and then they would leave, and then we would continue the we would continue the scene. Of course, I wish you know some of it was in the film because it, it fascinates me. That's why also this is something I will talk about later about you know having to take out every uh, lots lots of very interesting things. Actually, the first uh, version of the film was twelve hours. <laughs> yes. 
And, and I still find it very hard now to say this is the last edit of the film. I, I'm still editing it in my head the whole time, and I keep waking up my husband every night and saying, what do you think? We should have done that. We should have done. And he thinks like it's a nightmare. He's also <laughs> the producer of the film and the music composer of the film. And I, I, it, it keeps haunting me because of those very precious uh, real moments that unfortunately we, we, we We've put a lot of them, but we can we could put everything. Um, so that was a, a, an example to just to show you how sometimes you know it doesn't have to be so structured. It doesn't have to be. Uh, we can actually shoot with the sound, with everything else going on, and just you need to really know what you're doing. That's why it, it's very important that you can't really improvise when if if you don't know what you're doing. It doesn't, you need to have to start from, from a very solid script. And actually, Eric Dolphy once said that it's like jazz. You can only improvise when you really know the music. You need a very strong foundation in order to be free. So I think that's what we used to do. It's very important that you have this very strong foundation, which is the script, you know, where you're starting where you're going, what's your story, but then within it, you're not afraid to just improvise and get out of, of, of the paved ways because you know where you're going. Um, what else do I want to tell you? Yes, so, so for, for some people, it sounds, for some people, it sounds like chaos. And actually, the word Capernaum means chaos. But uh, it also means miracles. So things like that used to happen all the time. And um, I'll tell you about a small miracle also uh, at the end of, uh, of, of our talk. But small miracles used to happen like this all the time during the shoot in the midst of, of, of all this chaos. Um, and there's another very important ingredient when you're doing this, when you're improvising, and when you're working with non-professional actors. It, that, it might sound a little bit naive, but it's actually love, really loving your characters, being fascinated by them, by who they are, building their, this, this trust relationship. Because I'm also maybe, in a way, fascinated with human behavior. Um, I'm fascinated with how uh, you know, we react to certain things, towards certain things, and how it feels to be in someone else's shoes. Maybe it's because I'm also bored with my own personality, because I want to explore my other natures. And I truly believe that there are other natures in every one of us. And actually, it's the only place where it's Cinema is only the only place where it's actually legal for you and legitimate for you to explore your other natures. Otherwise, in real life, you're labeled as crazy. You cannot be, you know, uh, reacting differently uh, every day. So I think uh, to a lot of people who work in this in this uh, industry, who are filmmakers, screenwriters, actors, I think. We love our jobs because it also allows us to get away from, from ourselves, to get, get away from maybe the boredom from, of our own personalities. Because, because we need to explore our other natures. 
Yeah, so, I asked uh, I asked uh, Kausar to just uh, forget everything. We're not shooting a film. She has to look at me at that moment and uh, look at me as the society that judge, judges her and just spit out all her anger. And so it's here, it's actually a moment where she's talking about her own life, but also adapting it to the screenplay that we had written in a way. And it was amazing to see this, to see how both were connected in a way. She used to give her children water and sugar because she couldn't give them anything else. She didn't have the means to give them anything else. She, until now, her, her children are 18 years old and nine years and 10 years old. They're not declared because she couldn't declare them uh, when they were born. Uh, she is she's talking about herself here, but through Suad, who is the mother of Zain in the film. So it was even she was a little bit confused be, be, between not really confused, but yes, playing with with her real life and her own struggle and adapting it to the screenplay, adapting it to the story that she was telling. And it was so uh, close together that she, she didn't feel like she was acting she, at that moment. She was not acting. She was just being herself. And, and anyway, the word acting didn't, acting didn't have really a place in the film. I was just asking them to be. I never asked them to act. I was just asking them to be who they are. But, but we, I think we were so ready to just um, uh, capture also there and, and creating a platform for them to express themselves that it actually happened and she was actually grabbing in real life the opportunity to stand in front of a real judge and here it's a real judge, he's a real judge, uh, the judge in the film is a real judge. So she actually grabbed the opportunity of standing in front of a, a real judge and spitting out her anger towards the system, towards me, also the society that judges her, me, the lawyer that judges her, and everybody else that has been so harsh on her during her whole, uh, her whole life. She's been struggling her whole life to actually be heard, and she was never heard. She was in those courts so many times before without anybody listening to her. And now she just grabbed that opportunity to just say out loud so she feels. So it was a very, very uh, important moment for every one of us, including her, because she really grabbed that moment. And it's, it, that moment is actually now also, uh, in a way, uh, uh, ex not exceeding, but becoming more than you know, just a film. It's, it's actually becoming a debate in Lebanon, and, 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 and things hopefully will change because they were able to really express their own struggle and put it up there on the big screen. And actually the fact that we also shot chronologically for such a long time allowed them to be able to really grasp their story and understand it and, and grow with it. Uh, actually, Jonas, the, 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 the treasure, her name is Treasure, the little girl, actually she made her real first steps during the, 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 the shooting of the film. So the, the, the children were growing, the parents were growing, 
everybody, we were growing by, uh, as, as, a, as, as a crew, by everything we used to see. And it was very difficult to know that we're actually grasping real moments, we're actually shooting. Uh, uh, Kausa lives in those slums that you see in the film. Her house is actually one of the houses, that this shot where the camera goes out and up and you see all the tires on, the, on those houses and the tiles. Her house is actually one of those houses. So we used to go there, shoot in their neighborhoods, sit on their sofas, eat their food, breathe the, the same air, uh, uh, share so many things during the shoot, but then we used to go home and sleep in a warm bed. So it was actually very difficult emotionally to do the, that every day, to know that we're there in their reality, but then we're leaving them there. Um, so it was very nurturing also, the whole process of spending so much time and understanding it and really living there with, with their problems, almost shooting in the sewers. We were shooting in the sewers because unfortunately this is the reality. And having you know, the voices and the cries of, of those children around us all the time, as if it was like a background uh, sound of children crying the whole time that we were shooting there. Um, so now we go to the editing phase. And the editing phase is actually uh, the, 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 the place where we, the phase where we rewrite the film for the third time. And it's really the most difficult decision-making process, especially when you have over 500 hours of rushes and that you have like every bit of it. And and that the first version, like I told you, is 12 hours. It's a nightmare when you know that the film, when you're editing, that the film can actually take so many different directions and it can take so many different structures. It doesn't have to be the way you had written it. It can be rewritten, it can have a different structure. And, and it's very difficult to take those decisions. And I think as filmmakers, and as screenwriters, we're lacking one very crucial element, one actually gift that is so, I think, that is usually a blessing. We're like, we don't have this gift of actually watching the film as if we're seeing it for the first time, like any normal viewer. This is something that we will never be able to achieve. And it's actually only then that you are able, as a filmmaker, to take the right decisions. And I went to so many different things. I went to crazy stuff. I, I actually tried hypnosis uh, in order to, yes, in order to try to forget the film. So I, 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 I spoke to a friend of mine who does hypnosis. I told her, can you make me forget everything about the film for only two hours and make me just watch this film as if I'm seeing it for the first time like any normal viewer who's watching the film for the first time, she told me, no, you're crazy, you can't. <laughs> so I really couldn't. And so we, what we did also, um, it's, it's, really, it's really difficult to take decisions when you are so, uh, I think, um, 
when you've been diving in this adventure for such a long time, the whole process, two, two years of editing, six months of shooting, three years of research, so the whole thing took like four years of my life where I was working on this every single day. So it's difficult to really have the distance that you need in order to take the right decisions. So I did a lot of um, screenings, te test screenings where we used to listen to really everybody's opinion, take notes and listen and analyze and see why, without really interfering and, or, and trying to convince anyone of the opposite uh, um, opinion. I just wanted to understand how does a person who is seeing this film for the first time uh, perceive it? What are the flaws? What are? And it's very important. It helps a lot, but still, I'm still not able to say I am done. I'm not able to say, to let go and say that's it. That's the finished pro pro product. Because I know that so many beautiful, precious moments inside those 500 hours that are not there and that maybe I will never be able to share with anyone. So you keep this never really, you never have peace in a way uh, when you're making a film. I, I think I'm not the only one. I think a lot of, a lot of filmmakers go through this. And, and I'm sure uh, if you ask many of them, they would tell you, yes, I wish I can re-edit my film 10 years later. So I think now I've understood that maybe in the process, maybe the next time, if I find a producer who's crazy enough to do this, maybe take a year off, like do a first, uh, a first edit of the film, take six months off, maybe even a year off, do something else, you know, wash my eyes, work on another project, and then go back and rediscover that film and that edit uh, with, with fresh eyes. I think it's the most you know, precious thing that, that, that can actually enlighten um, you as a filmmaker where you've been diving so much in, in, your, in your material. Um, uh, I don't know what else I want to tell you. I told you about waking up <laughs> in the middle of the night. Ah, the, yes, I want to tell you also that, like I told you, the, the, the title of the film, Capernaum, means chaos and, and miracles. And I told you that miracles kept happening the whole time. And now, when I, looked at, when I look at Zane's smile at the end of the film, it has a completely different meaning for me, because now Zane, who's been living almost the same circumstances, Dances, uh, has a Norwegian passport now. He's been resettled in Norway. He's living a completely different life. He's going to school. He's regained his childhood. And, and, and life keeps reminding me in a way that I don't know what it is, but in the film, Zane used to dream of going to Sweden. Now he's in Norway. In the film, um, uh, Rahil and her son uh, get deported. They are now back, they were deported and they are now in, in Kenya. Um, in the film, 
uh, I don't remember what else, but reality keeps, you know, haunting us in a way and reminding us that what we were doing was not actually just another film. And uh, that's it. And I think another miracle is actually me standing here giving a lecture uh, about my film, being among all those amazing, you know, filmmakers and screenwriters is actually, yes, another miracle. So thank you for listening to me. too long. No, that was perfect. Thank you so much. I'm going to fundamentally disagree with two things that you said. One is that you are not a screenwriter and the other is that you're not a lecturer because you're clearly <laughs> both of those things. Thank you so much. That was uh, amazing. Um, I've got so much I want to ask you about and I know that lots of people will have too so we'll get straight on with it. Just explain to us, with this last film, did, was there ever a point when you had an actual script? Yes. Course. Before you started, and yes, then yes, you absolutely. just stole things as you went along. Yes, absolutely. There was a very, very solid script, um, and I think you can't really uh, expect to improvise, uh, you know, not knowing where you're going, and really succeed in doing that. It's very difficult. It's only when you really know your material very, very well that you allow yourself to improvise because it's not scary anymore. You know where you're going. You know what you're going to keep from that, what is good, what is actually adding some kind of value to what you've written and what you don't really need in what you want to say because you know what the scene has to tell. You know where you're starting, where it needs to land, and what the scene needs to tell as a story. You know what you want. So it's actually uh, not scary anymore to improvise because you know what you will keep and what you will not keep. And it's actually also nurturing because it's very, for me at least, I'm not saying this, I, you know, it doesn't apply to, to other filmmakers, of course, but for me, it's more challenging that way. I'm not interested in just sticking to what I had written because I need to, in a way, discover things and be surprised. And this surprise element keeps you going, gives you so much adrenaline when you're working and when you're actually thinking, that was a real moment. This is not something I've written or imagined or, or fantasized about. This is a reality, especially when you're trying to make a film that is, in a way, the closest possible to reality. And it's the biggest compliment for me when people tell me, I thought I was, I was looking at a documentary, but then I understood it was a fiction. Because this is what I wanted to achieve. I, really, because I think cinema can have a much bigger impact on you as a, as a viewer, when you're really thinking that this is an actual struggle and you're really not thinking it, it's actually feeling it. You know that this is Zayn's life when you're watching it. You know that this is Rahil's life, life when you're watching it. You know it's not make-believe. Can, can you imagine, now you've had this experience, which must have been really different from the experiences on the other two films, can you imagine going back to a more conventional sort of sitting down with a blank piece of paper and 
starting from scratch? Or will you always now have an element of this in the work? I think, yes, I think in a way, when you, when you go this path, it's difficult to go back. It's difficult to, unless, you know, I, I, it's a complete, uh, you know, fantasy or a film that is uh, like, uh, I don't know, something that is very, very decalé from, from real life or different from real life, then yes. But if, if I want to continue doing that kind of cinema, it's difficult. At, at least I know now how precious uh, um, research is how precious and how confidence it gives you, how much confidence it gives you when you're actually knowing that this is actually what you're saying is true. It's, it's not, you're not inventing a story. You're not, um, I'm not saying this doesn't apply to all kinds of, all schools of filmmaking. It really applies to this kind of filmmaking that I am into right now. Mm. It doesn't mean that other kinds of films that are you know, completely fantasized are not great. There's masterpieces uh, like that. But uh, for now, I think I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. I don't know how, how long I will keep doing it. Maybe one day I will shift completely. But I'm interested in, 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 in reflecting reality. I'm interesting in, interested in telling real stories. I'm interested in, in showing real struggles because I think it's, it's not even it's not even a choice for me in a way, it's a duty. Mm. I don't know why I feel this. Maybe living in Lebanon and growing up in Lebanon in, in such a difficult, complicated country where nothing is, is, is going the way it should. I, sometimes I feel like it's a cursed region. I mean, that's why also the film is called Capernaum. Capernaum is a, a cursed vi a village to cursed by Jesus, and there used to be a lot of miracles happening there. So it's a mixture between curse and chaos and miracles. So, so I feel I feel the responsibility of being an an an, an, an artist living in Lebanon. You feel like it's a duty to to use your tool to actually make some kind of change, or at least if if you if you can't achieve change, at least trigger debate. Um, it's not a choice for me. I, I need to do that. I, I feel it. I feel that mission for now. You feel it for now. You didn't always feel that, did you? No. When you set out to make Caramel, of course, that yes. was you. It grew. It feels like everyone else. Yes, absolutely. I think, it, I think it's something that comes with age, with maturity, with, with motherhood, with becoming feeling or, or, or wanting to be more politically engaged or socially engaged. Uh, this comes with time, it comes with maturity. I didn't know what I was doing when I was making my first film. I didn't know it really worked for me. I was learning really my craft while, while I was making my first film. So you don't, now I know that I need time when I'm working on a film to be able really to, to draw these kinds of performances from non-professional actors and children, or I need, I need to, I need this organized chaos. This organized chaos actually, uh, I don't know, gives me adrenaline, charges me with something. I cannot do things that are very structured. I cannot be paralyzed in the classical way of making films. It, it, I don't know why, it, in a way, it scares me, it kills me. Do you think you could have done this had you not had those earlier experiences of a more conventional? No, absolutely not. I, I, need, I needed those other experiences 
to learn what works for me. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, I, I, I love my other two films, but it was a completely different, uh, had a completely different personality even. I changed. For me, there was a before and after uh, Capernaum for me. I changed uh, humanly. I mean, as, uh, I, I changed. Even physically, I changed. It was so challenging. It was so... So, um, uh, yeah. You talked a little bit about, I mean, you talked a lot about being a writer. You talked a lot about being a director, a little bit about being a producer as well. Yes. The other bit of your kind of hybrid, and which makes you a little bit unusual in this series, is that you're also an actor. Um, and that's how you started. Do you think that that made you, has made you a different kind of writer? Absolutely. I think the fact that you know actors well, because you are also in the shoes of an actor a lot of times, I think you know what an actor needs, you know how an actor expects to be directed, you know what an actor expects um, also uh, from a script he's reading. I think it enriches you on so many levels, everything, being a director, an actor, producer, writer. I think for me, I can't really divide myself. For me, I'm just all of those things together. And it really in, uh, um, makes me see this, uh, this whole thing from so many different perspectives. And it informs each, each job, actually informs the other one in a, in a, in a positive way. Uh, and also being a director, I, I, I work differently also with actors because I was also an actor. So the relationship between the director and actor becomes much more strong when you know uh, what the actor needs from a director and what the director needs from an actor. And being both of them, you, you, you know. And it actually, I think, creates a much better relationship for me as an actor with any any director, because I understand the director, I know what he feels, I know the his you know his sort of um, fragility. I don't know if you know. Uh, I, I know I know when to talk to a director, when not to talk, when to propose something, when not to propose, when to shake his his you know um, uh, in a way this his confidence, when not to do it. You really become very delicate in in in, in that way. And when you were writing, for your, presumably for the first two films, you knew the part you were writing was going to be taken by you. Yes. Does that make you write it in a different way? I mean... I, I'm, I don't, uh, actually, when I think about it, I don't enjoy it very well because I'm afraid... The writing, all that. The writing uh, for myself, because I'm always afraid to challenge myself as an actor. I'm not, I don't have enough confidence to challenge myself as an actor or to say I'm going to you know, give myself a very challenging part and really explore my other natures the way I really want to explore them. Because I don't have enough confidence. I've, I didn't start as an actor. I started as a filmmaker and then I started acting in my own films because I felt the need to do it. I felt close to those characters, so I did it. But I don't write challenging parts for myself because I'm afraid. And in this one, I was in Capernaum, actually, I was the most afraid. And, and uh, the, the part was much more written than this. And, and we shot those scenes with the lawyer in the, the film. You understand where she's coming from, why she's defending Zane, what is her story, what is her struggle. You go to her house. 
you understand her pain and all that. But then when I started editing the film, I felt that I was the only lie in the film. I was the only person that was an actor. I was not a lawyer in real life. So it was a sort of a small lie. That's why we took everything out. And we kept those small scenes. You, you, you barely see me for one minute in the film. We kept those small scenes just to understand how Zayn was able to actually file a complaint and stand in front of the, uh, a judge. So for me, it's very difficult. I, as much as I love acting, uh, it's very difficult to write uh, interesting characters for myself. I don't know if I will ever be able to do it, but uh, I'd, I'd love to because I have never really experienced that amazing relationship between an actor and director where you really dig into your personality and you challenge yourself and you explore those other natures that are inside. You know that they're inside, but you don't know how to, you're afraid to, you're afraid to let them out and you really need the love uh, and the desire of somebody else to uh, actually be able to let them out. And could you ever imagine writing for somebody else? Writing, writing for somebody else to direct? Um, or is it all just... Writing for somebody else to direct? No, I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I can't really let go. No, it's impossible. No, I don't imagine myself doing it. It's interesting, though, because your first two films particularly, I mean, a lot of the... You know the reception of those two films was around the the uh, the genre, how you treat a genre, particularly that these were. I think Caramel they described it as an international rom com. Somebody somebody I was reading a great review this yeah. morning which said that it was Steel Magnolias without the terminal illness. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but uh, you know a, a lot of that is quite a conventional way of you know pulling apart a subject and putting it back together again. Do you really not think you could do that for somebody else, or are you just not interested in doing that for somebody else? I've never really thought about it. Uh, I've never really thought about it. I think I'm too je jealous in a way, not jealous, but yes, I'm too uh, possessive mm -hmm. over, I don't know, what I write and what I do, that it's difficult to just let go and say, you know, you can do it. I've never thought about it. It's a very good question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody will ask. Um, and the other thing, I, I know we've, we've only got a few minutes left, actually, so I'm going to go to questions very shortly. But just, just let me just ask, is it, do you think there is still a through line between your various different films? I mean, the three could not be more different, I don't think. You know, the subjects, the way that you uh, have put them together and, and the way they've come out. Do you see a clear... Well, Sort of, you know, is there is there a your personality in all three of your films? Do you still see that? Yes, absolutely. I think, I think the relationship to actors, this uh, way of directing actors, this way of working almost all the time with non-professional actors, because I did this with Caramel. Also, almost uh, all of them were non-professional actors ex except the policeman. I think, yes, and, and where, where do we go now also? There were maybe two or three actors in the film, but the rest were not professional actors. Also, the f that, that relationship with actors, you feel it, this, this, uh, this way of draw. That's, that's my, I think, my, my strongest, my favorite, my favorite thing about filmmaking, actually, is really drawing 
great performances out of people who have never acted in their lives. And really having this kind of fascination um, towards their personalities in real life. And it shows, really. It showed that the, there's a fascination because the way we shoot them the whole time, the way we, the way we in, in a way, magnify their personality, uh, you can really see it. You can really feel it. It's like the secret code that I have with my actors. This is something I think that shows in, in, in all of the films, I guess. And also maybe, you know, the humor part, you know, finding humor in the most difficult situations, in the most absurd situations, also is something that um, I, I like doing. Um, I don't know actually if when you see Caramel and when you see Capernaum, you say, I know it's the same person doing those, thing, those two films. I don't know. I think Capernaum is very, very different in the way and the, it's harsher, it's more, it's less, um, but I don't know if you really see through it and you see me in, in all of them as, as, as a normal viewer that doesn't know. Mm. I think also the, the interest that you previously have had in telling stories about women, particularly in the first two films, and then you've moved slightly yes, to the side like of that. that. Is, yeah. that, is that a kind of, I mean, did you consciously set out to make films about women in the first place, and then you have moved away? Or no. Is that just an accident? No, not at all. I think I, I was, it was natural for me in the first film because I was also, uh, you know, trying to understand women in my country, trying to understand the contradiction that I used to see all the time, contradiction between uh, what those women, uh, um, actually uh, uh, allowed themselves to be when they had different dreams, you know, the contradiction between who you end up becoming uh, and what you wanted to become and are trying to understand why is there so much contradiction, why aren't we able to actually be who we want to be, uh, of course because of social pressure, so many different, uh, different um, uh, reasons. Uh, I just decided to talk about this because I felt the need to talk about it. I felt the need to understand through those examples of different women coming from different backgrounds, different educations, different stories, different experiences, as if I was drawing, you know, um, you know, um, it's, it's not really a resume, it's not really a s summary uh, of, of all the women, of all women, but it was, you know, seeing it from, from different perspectives and trying to understand women from different ages and all that, because I needed to understand also. I was looking around me, actually, it was at a point where I was looking around me at women and I felt uh, sadness in most of the women I knew. There was a sort of sadness in their eyes. I never had encountered a woman that was actually completely fulfilled or fulfilling herself. I was actually looking for a role model and I couldn't find it. And I started asking myself the question, that's why I started working on this film. Um, and the same thing for where do we go now? It was actually also a time where I was, you know, I was pregnant with my first baby and conflicts uh, erupted in Lebanon and there were conflicts that, you know, erupted over a period, a very short period of time, like three hours or four hours, and all of a sudden, 
Beirut was actually on the verge of a new civil war. Lebanon was actually on the verge of a new civil war. So I felt, you know, at that time, what would I do as a mother to stop my son from taking a weapon and going down to, to down the streets and 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 killing somebody else's uh, another woman's son? What would I do as a mother? And that's how it started. Uh, it became the story of those women who were going to stop their men from fighting. So it actually always comes from a need, in a way, a need to express something, a need to, or, or, or something that becomes an obsession, something that you is always on your mind, you're always thinking about it, and then you express it and you turn it into a film. Uh, uh, this, is, this is what I know, this, that's my tool. And it was the same thing for this film. Uh, it was really the need to, to just um, stop being silent. I felt the duty to just talk about this problem. Uh, and because it's a really, and we're not talking about hundreds of children or thousands of children. We're talking about millions of children across the world that are deprived from their most basic rights. And that was the ignition point. Of course, then later, I, I, I spoke about many different themes, but, but the igniting point was, was really this. There's over 280 million children across the world that work, that don't go to school, that are living in, in unbearable conditions. Those, children's are, are, those children are growing up angry, they're growing up numb most of the time. I, I saw kids that don't don't react anymore. They've been in such a state of shock. They don't, they don't, they don't do anything. They don't laugh. They don't cry. They don't dance. They don't play. They don't do anything. They've been so uh, traumatized, so beaten up, so raped, so abused that they are numb. Those children growing up numb, we have to, we have to just be aware of the problem that we're going to face in a few years, where. You know, this is going to explode in our faces one day. So I just felt the need to talk about it. As simple as that. It doesn't come from, you know, wanting, analyzing, oh, now I'm going to talk about women. No, well. Glad you did. Um, <laughs> OK, we've got time for just a couple of questions, I'm afraid. Pop your hands up. One down here. Hello. And then one down here. Thank you very much for your lecture. Thank you very much for your lecture, Nadine. Um, I just wanted to ask you how the actors felt about the characters that you had created. They're obviously very, very close to their reality. But when you think, uh, for example, the woman who played Swad, it's a pretty tough mirror of motherhood that you put in front of her. Did she express the need to not do certain things or change the character? You know, what was their relationship? Or even little Zane, like all of these beautiful swear words that he uses through the film, did it come yeah. naturally from him? How much comes from you? Just trying to understand that dynamic. Uh, the, I think the fact that they were felt that they were part of a mission uh, allowed them to really do everything they were doing in the film. Kausar uh, Saad, uh, mother of Zain, actually felt the need to express it because this is something that she sees around her. She was actually inspired by someone in her family. Everything that she was doing 
was inspired by someone in her family. So she felt the need to express it because she felt she was part of that mission. Everybody that was in the film was actually collaborating in that mission. Zayn was doing the same thing. Zayn felt that he was being the voice of those voiceless kids that he used to meet every day or see every day struggle because Zayn is coming from the same background. Zayn used to, you know, he went, never went to school. He's a Syrian refugee. He's been living in Lebanon under very, very difficult circumstances in a very dangerous neighborhood. So he used to struggle every day to survive, you know, getting into fights. Uh, those swear words are his own swear words. This is the way he talks. This is her, his personality. And I, I, I was, it, it was very important for me to keep them and to keep his personality because this was one of the most, I think, important signs of the violence he used to, he used to uh, go through. That's where you know what this kid is, 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 has gone through. It's by the language that he uses. And this is nothing compared to Zane's language. It's nothing. When you hear Zane, when you hear him getting into a fight and fighting with his friends, you say, how does he learn? Where did he learn those things? What did this child see? to be able to express himself this way. So this was very important to keep it, because this is, instead of you know, showing him getting into a fight, you just keep everything the way it is, and you understand everything, and you understand everything that he's been through. And he felt he was part of a mission. You know, when he's talking about, when he uh, calls the TV show, and he says, life is worse than the shoe I'm wearing, um, I've never heard a nice, what am I going to remember? The hose or the chains or the, he was actually talking about things that he had seen, talking about children that he had seen getting beaten up. He actually, when he's talking about Alia, uh, when he's saying to his sister, do you know Alia, your friend? Uh, her mother put her in the house uh, until that pig came to, came. he's actually talking about a real Alia, that he knows. So he felt he was part of the mission. So he, 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 we were all in it together. Nobody felt like it was something imposed on them or they're doing something that they don't want to do. They, they know that they need to be, for, for things, for their life to change, they need to talk about it. And they were collaborating in the process. Uh, hello, Nadine. First of all, I watched the film Kafarnaum. And it's amazing. And I can tell you, like, I watched all your films. First of all, I'm Lebanese as well. So, it shows. <laughs> <laughs> so Kafarnaum is different than uh, the first two in, in so many ways. My, my curiosity here lies by you being a filmmaker. You want to do the casting. How were you able, like, I know you took them from real situations, but how were you able to say that Zayn is Zayn? He is perfect for this role. And this one is perfect for this role. Did you do a normal casting? Were you able, how, how did you cast them? And something else, the last thing in the film when Zayn is talking on the phone, he's telling this whole speech that you're talking about, was it improvised or was it written? Because he delivered, I think, the best performance in the film, in that speech in particular. Okay, so for the first question, the casting was like a wild street casting. So I had an amazing crew of five to six people that used to go everywhere in Lebanon to very you know, difficult neighborhoods uh, and, and interview uh, children and their parents and, and just, just 
we never, you know, you don't expect them to come to audition. You have to go uh, to them. So that's how it happened. And Zayn was actually playing on the streets with his friends. He was feeding the chickens and, and, and the casting director saw him and she interviewed him. And when I saw him, actually there was another story, a nice story, I don't know if we have some time to tell it. Um, when, you know, remember when I told you, when I came back home and I drew that picture, I, when I saw this kid trying to sleep and I drew this picture of this child that is shouting at adults and he has his, his mouth wide open and he's shouting. When I compare this drawing to Zane's picture, it was actually Zane four years before I met him. So it's something that tells you everything he is, actually. The fact that he's, it was actually when you see, I forgot this, actually, I wanted to read to you the description of Zane, and I forgot it, the description of Zane in the, in the script. He is described exactly the same way, that he has to be uh, smaller than his age because of malnutrition. He has to have those eyes, that, those sad eyes that show you that you know he's been a witness to so many things. This wisdom in his personality because he's lost his child and he's seen so many things that he's not a child anymore. Everything in the description was actually when we saw Zane, it was Zane, and and it was obvious that. Um, I mean, it took me like two. The, the, the second answer he gave her, I knew that it was him. And I never, you know, doubted it. And it was like this for almost everyone in the film. It's something in you, like, a, like, a, like love at first sight. It's like a fascination for their character in, in their real life that tells you you're on the right path. Even if sometimes you have doubts and it's difficult and you don't know. The first day of the shoot with the parents, with the Zane's parents, I thought, what have I done? This is, this is a complete failure. But then, I don't know, like a miracle the next day because you give them the strength and you talk and you talk and you explain why and, and you give them wings and, and, and they start feeling, because you know, a few days before being on set, they were actually struggling to prove they even exist. None of them have papers legally. Not only emotionally they don't exist, but even legally they don't exist. So all of a sudden, they are here, they feel important. What they have to say actually counts for somebody. And it gave them wings. And the next day, it was, I don't know, another miracle. I, I couldn't believe what they were able to do. Um, and what was the other question? The last speech that ah, yes. No, it was written, but it was also uh, very adapted to his words. So that's what we used to do all the time. So, of course, you guide him into uh, saying things uh, uh, in the way, I mean, towards what you want. But he also uses his own words. So it's a mixture between what was written and a few words that he, had, that he added. It, it's always like that. We were talking before we came out here tonight about how, to this afternoon about how this series tells you that there's kind of a million ways to make a movie, and I'm so glad that we got to hear about the way that you make them. Thank you so much for coming Thank to speak. You. To you. Thank you.